You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Uh, we're continuing in the Gospel of John today in a, a familiar passage for maybe some of you who um, have some familiarity with the Bible, and that's Jesus washing his disciples' feet. We'll be in John chapter 13 today. Let's go to John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who I sent, who sent me. This is God's word. Well, maybe you can begin to imagine how dirty sandal-wearing first-century feet would be. In that day, people would often travel by foot for miles at a time on in sandals on dusty roads, roads shared by donkeys and goats, and you can imagine the kinds of things that would be collected on their feet and on their sandals on their journey. And their journey would often end at your house for supper. And this is customary. They would walk to dinner, and they they didn't eat at a table where their feet were carefully hidden under a tablecloth, underneath the table, sitting in chairs. We often think about that even with this scene. You might even come to mind uh, Leonardo da Vinci's painting here um, in 
and, and where Jesus is here with his disciples at the table. Uh, the table didn't come around for a thousand years after Jesus. Uh, it was more likely like a picture like this. This is from the Biblical Archaeological Society from the Greco-Roman world and the Jewish custom of reclining at table. This was at a banquet. And, and here in the room that Jesus ate, the table was probably smaller or in a home, and they would they would rest their left elbow on a cushion with their feet extended out to their side or behind them, and they would eat with their right hand. Look at this picture. Everyone's feet is at least on the furniture with no sandals. And some of these feet, look how close they are to people's faces. Imagine someone traveling um, with, on the road. Imagine somebody collecting all the you know, the, the nasty stuff, the feces, all the stuff that comes from the animals and the dust from the road, and they come into the house for dinner, and this is where they're eating, and their foot is just right in your face. You have, some of the, you have a sectional at home, and you ever do, like, movie night, and do you ever do, do, you ever do head-to-head, or do you do, like, feet-to-head? You ever get that whiff when it's, like, feet-to-head, and you're like, come on, change your socks? And that's like, and we're not walking barefoot. And so this is the custom of the day. Here's the problem. Jesus requested James and and Peter to go and find a room where they can have a private meal together. And apparently when they go and rent this room, a servant is not a part of the cost of renting this room. And so so they would have to find someone to rise from dinner and to wash their feet. When you got to someone's house, a house would often have a, a hired servant who would be there to remove the sandals and to wash the person's feet. And it was just customary to do this. Who would rise from dinner to accomplish this uncomfortable task? Not the disciples, for sure not the disciples we learned just from last week. That What were the disciples doing at this meal? They were too busy arguing about who was going to be the greatest. They were too busy thinking about their own reputation, their own accolades, not about serving others. So who would do this task? No one took the place except for Jesus. And in this encounter between Jesus and his disciples, Jesus takes this ordinary task, this everyday task of foot washing, and uses it to teach us an extraordinary lesson on what it means to know him, to follow him, to trust in him. This foot-washing scene gives us three observations. One is the humble love of Jesus. Second, the security of God in the midst of suffering. And finally, the grace of salvation. Let's look first at the humble love of Jesus. This most obviously points us, this metaphor points us to the service of Christ, his humble nature uh, in doing this. It points to the love of Jesus for his disciples. Ultimately, this act of humble love would be demonstrated most fully in the cross. But here, it is leading up to it. Here, right now, we see this lowly, menial, humble, and even degrading act of foot washing that Jesus does for his disciples. We're we're told in the opening verses of this passage that Jesus had gathered a community from the world to himself, plucked out of a world of darkness and into his marvelous light. And this small group of believers, Jesus loved them. He says that he loved them fully and he loved them to the very end, all the way point to the point of death, but also loving them to the end, meaning loving them to the fullest extent. We're also told in this passage what Jesus knew about himself. He knew 
that God had given him all authority to put all things in the whole world in creation under his power. That he had come from God, we know that he knew he was returning to God. Jesus was secure, confident in who he was. He was not trying to prove himself to his disciples. Jesus was serving his disciples, not to get something from them, but he was serving his disciples to show the extent of his love for them. And this is where the bizarre thing happens. Jesus gets up from the meal. If you've ever had a dinner party at your house or been to someone's house for dinner, and someone just gets up from the meal, all eyes are on that person. Likely all eyes are on Jesus as he gets up from the meal in silence. He takes off his garments and wraps a towel around his waist. This would likely be the equivalent today of, of a man at dinner, at a dinner party, taking off, standing up, going to the kitchen, taking off their jacket, taking off their tie, taking off their trousers, and they're just stunned in silence and then wrapping a towel around their waist. What is Jesus doing? He is taking on the garb of a servant. He is putting on the clothing of a humble, menial servant. Let's look a little deeper into this act because it is profound. Me, foot washing is the, one of the most menial, lowly tasks that you could do in the first century the disciples would it, considered it so menial, they would never even ask a peer to wash their feet. They would never consider washing the feet of another friend. Definitely not for Jesus and having Jesus do it for them. Their teacher, and by this time they're calling him Lord, recognizing that he is the, the one sent from God and the true Messiah. Those who were superior in this society always had people who were culturally inferior to them to accomplish this task. Jewish people had their feet washed by Jewish slaves. Jewish slaves wouldn't even wash the feet of fellow Jewish slaves. They would have their feet washed by Gentile slaves. And Gentile slaves would have their feet washed by children. And this was the pecking order. This was the, the rules of their culture. It was such a lowly task. It was such a humble task. I even came across a, a biblical historian uh, this re week who said that there is not a single instance in Jewish history or in Greco-Roman history of a culturally superior person washing the feet of a culturally inferior person. I mean, it's incredible. Nowhere can this be found except here in God's word. It was so unthinkable. It is stunning to break these cultural rules and to humiliate yourself to such a level. They were stunned to silence. I remember not long ago being approaching a store and going into the store and, and kind of converging with a woman at the door and she kind of speeds up ahead of me and opens the door for me to go in. And I said to her, this is very weird. I feel like you should be the one walking through the door and I should hold the door for you. I'm abandoning every lesson I've ever been taught about honor and respect if a woman needs a door open for her. But nonetheless, I walked through and I thanked her. But for a minute there, it was culturally strange. It was weird to take that position to let her honor me in that way. It was, and this example is, is a very small, mild reversal of a cultural norm. 
That caused me just to feel a little awkward, but went through it anyway. What Jesus is doing is not mildly culturally abnormal. It is obscenely stunning. It is an obscene, stunning reversal of cultural norms, and it's to show the, uh, the radical nature of his love for his disciples. His humble love, the lengths that he will go to serve them, to rescue them, and to love them. This is the reason Jesus came. Jesus came to serve. He had come to lay down his life for sinners. Jesus intentionally found opportunities throughout his life to expose himself to acts of humiliation. He looked for them. He approached them. He embraced them. It's wild. He was poor, and he didn't have to be. He had the riches of heaven and the resources of all of heaven, and he emptied himself of those things. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. When a king would ride into Jerusalem and take their place of honor, they would ride in on a valiant horse, a war horse, and he rides in on a donkey at perhaps the most popular moment of his entire ministry when perhaps even a million people were gathered around who had heard of his ministry and, and heard of his acts and miracle acts in the area. He washes feet. He intentionally goes into this humiliating act. He remains silent when falsely accused. When he hangs on the cross, he doesn't rebuke his accusers or his murderers. And finally, he dies in the most humiliating way that could, be, that could happen. Nearly naked, crucified on a cross by Roman soldiers. Why would he do this? All of this to convince us of his love and it is matchless. All of this to convince us that his love is matchless. We will not find a love like his. We will not find a friend like him in this world. There is no one who will love us like Jesus. There is no one who will serve us like Jesus. There is no one who will embrace our weaknesses and give us his strength. No one like him. This is the humble love of Jesus. That the one in whom is the very nature God made himself nothing and took on the very nature of a servant to die on the cross, a humiliating act, a, a life of, of, of humble love ending in a, an act of humiliation in the world. This is why he does it. And it would be stunning for those who were there. It would be so radical. No one could miss no one could miss what Jesus was doing. But in the midst of this humble act, there is this hint of darkness. Do you see that? There is this hint of darkness kind of in this passage and through the passage. We see this impending betrayal, this impending uh, work of Judas and the devil. But even in this, we see the security of God in the midst of suffering. This is not just to uh, see and to help us to see the humble love of Jesus but to see how he responds in the midst of great trial. Beginning of the story and throughout, we see this darkness. In verse 2, it says, The devil had put into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. In the midst of Jesus' loving act of humility and service to his friends, 
there is this act of conspiracy between Judas and the devil to send Jesus to the cross. And the disciples are told this part of the story for one main reason. And you and I are brought into this detail of the story for one main reason. And that is this. It is for their faith. It is for our faith that it would be strengthened when the nightmare that Jesus promises will come true. When it actually happens that we would trust in him. Jesus tells us, and John, who is writing this, he's saying, this is why he tells us this, is so that when we are faced with betrayal and trials, we will not doubt, but we will trust that we'll be strengthened in our faith. What it must have been like to be Jesus, to know that one of his very closest friends was about to betray him, and yet Jesus still washes his feet. Jesus still loves him to the end. Although Jesus is about to be betrayed, he knows that he is not a helpless victim. He knows where he has come from. He knows where he is going. He knows what he must do. He knows that even though Judas was held morally responsible for his sinful acts, even this suffering was part of God's sovereign plan. Even betrayal of the worst kind is under God's loving control. As much as Judas thought that his actions could somehow hinder God's good plan. Judas is conspiring with the devil. He is conspiring with the Roman authorities. He's conspiring with the Jewish leaders to send Jesus to the cross, to kill his ministry, to silence his message. Thinking that they will get the best of Jesus. But even in the midst of that, his conspiring is still only advancing God's plan. Isn't that incredible that even the worst kinds of of suffering and betrayal that are about to happen will only serve to advance God's plan? Jesus knew this. He knew this, and that's what made him secure. That's what gave him faith. That's what gave him certainty. And he wants us to know it as well, that there is security in God, in the love of God, even in the midst of suffering. We don't know exactly how this works. We don't know the intersection of our responsibility and God's loving sovereignty, but we are told that that Judas is held responsible personally for his sin, and we are also told that this is commanded in Scripture to happen, and that it's part of God's loving control. We don't know how it works in us, but this is the message for us, that if you have been betrayed by a friend, Jesus can empathize with you, and you can go to him for help. If you've ever wanted to love your enemies, Jesus can empathize with you, and you could go to him for help. For here he is loving his enemy, his greatest earthly enemy, loving him to the very end. If you've ever been worried that following God would only lead not to only more earthly struggle, Jesus can empathize with you and you can go to him for help because Jesus is willingly walking into a situation that will lead to his death and he does it in faith. His help comes in the form of his presence. It comes in the form of his word to us. It comes in the form of his love, but ultimately it comes in the form of his grace for his salvation. 
It is where we look on the cross, we see God's love for us poured out. This meal is meant to just be a a preface, a foreshadow of this great climax of how God will love us by sending Jesus to the cross. This is the final observation of our passage. It is the grace of salvation. And we now get to that important part of the passage where all of our attention is drawn, this conversation between Jesus and Peter. If you want to know, and this is just a helpful hint of Bible study, of where the author is wanting to draw our attention primarily, go to where they're talking, go to the dialogue, go to where Jesus is talking with somebody else. And here is this conversation where Peter says, are you really going to wash my feet? Knowing everything that we know about foot washing, this makes perfect sense. Peter's not being rude. He's not being ignorant. He is not being naive. He is immersed in this cultural order that says this is a despicable act of self-degradation and humiliation. Why would you do this? It is culturally ridiculous for Jesus to do this. Everyone at the table knows it. Peter's just the only one speaking up. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no share in me. To which Peter says, okay, well then wash my whole body. Right? So Peter goes, he resists everything, and now he's all in. He's like, okay, well then wash everything. And then Jesus replies, for the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And now we know that Jesus isn't talking about foot washing. Now we know he's not talking about a healthy body, but a healthy heart. This is where Jesus' act of foot washing goes way beyond the, the physical, tangible expression of a sign, but it is, it is pointing to something else, else, a deeper spiritual reality to which it points. That is, Jesus must wash our feet, there is a kind of washing that must happen in our soul. And it is a kind of washing that we cannot do ourselves. It is a kind of washing that only he can do. This is a kind of soul washing that must come from the outside. I remember the days surrounding my Christian conversion now about 23 years ago. And there was one thing that I sensed that God so strongly wanted to give me that I didn't want any part in. I wanted nothing to do with his grace. It was the very thing that he wanted to give me, his favor, his love, his undeserved forgiveness. I didn't want it. Now, why on earth would anybody not want the grace of God? Because to embrace the grace of God, as, as the Bible describes it, is to admit that you need it is to admit that you're the kind of person that cannot get God on your own. And I never wanted to be that kind of person. I never wanted to be the person who was too weak to make my way to God. Not good enough. I never wanted to be the person to admit I am not enough to earn my way to God. I wanted to be the kind of person who could figure it out. I was smart. I was resourceful. I can fix this. If there's missteps I have made, then I can just turn over a new leaf, start a new chapter, acquire new skills. And we just want spiritual activity to, prove, to do. Let me have something to do. How hard is it for sinners to learn to accept that they need a Savior? How hard it is 
for a sinner to do that. We will do anything and everything rather than accept that we are hopeless without Christ. Surely there's something complicated we could do. Just don't ever let me have to admit, apart from God's grace, I'm completely helpless. But that's what Jesus says. If I don't wash you, you have no part in me, no share. You'll have nothing that I have to offer. It's not that we get close and then he just helps us get the final, the final rest of the way. It's not a 50-50 relationship where we give some and he gives some. It's not even where he rewards our good efforts or our righteousness. He says, you will have no share in me if I do not graciously change you. There are some, you know, I always thought there's some people in this world that needs God's grace, but I'm not one of them. I will preach God's grace, but I will not receive it. Well, Peter objects to anything that Jesus wants to give him that would be so lowly, so menial, so humble. He rejects to anything that Jesus would do that would undermine his own dignity. But what he fails to realize is that because we are so filled with selfish pride, the only way to be rescued from our sin is for Jesus to humbly give himself, to empty himself of all his dignity. You see, Peter is wanting Jesus to not do the very thing that Jesus must do to save Peter. Don't lower yourself. Don't humble yourself. But Jesus is saying and doing here, well, because you have not obeyed God, I must lower myself for you. There is absolutely no other way to salvation but through the basin and the towel of Jesus' sacrifice for us. There is no other way to the loving relationship and reconciliation with God than through the gracious, humbling, and death of Jesus Christ. You know what they call people who need God's grace? People. <laughs> Every single one of us, from, the, from those who have the worst of records to the best of records, to the ones who have the best personality to the worst personality, the one thing that is required of us is the humility to allow Jesus to rescue us to reach out our hands to him, empty of all that we have ever done that we thought was of good for our salvation and receive the gift of his grace. That is the one thing, um, that is the one thing required of us, to stop grasping at, at control for our life or circumventing his grace through our own control, but receiving everything that he has to offer Jesus calls Judas, the, the, he says he is the one who has lifted his heel against him. Now, this is an interesting idiom, right? It's an interesting phrase. We don't, we don't say that. I, I don't know. I haven't heard anybody say, you have lifted your heel against me. I spite you with all, you know, we don't talk like that, right? But what is Jesus saying? Well, this, this language is actually quite common, it, it, and there's great spiritual significance to the, the, uh, the imagery of the heel and what it does. It's an act of defiance and rebellion. It's an act of scorn. Jesus calls Judas the one who raises his heel. Jacob is a, a, one of the main characters in the Old Testament, and his name is derived from the Hebrew word for heel. Jacob has a twin brother, Esau, and Esau is born first, and Esau is born, and along comes Jacob holding on to the heel of his brother. And so his mother names him heel grabber. You're a heel grabber. <laughs> and it means one who, 
one who circumvents, uh, one who is a control freak, one who plans and schemes for their own, uh, for their own good, one who needs to have it their way. And it's here she sees the brother coming. See, even at your birth, you are trying to be first. This was also Judas. Instead of receiving the grace of God, he wanted to find his own way. He wanted to be the the writer of his own destiny. He wanted to to write his own story, and he did not want Jesus' help in doing it. He wanted to circumvent the grace of God in order to seek control for his own life. And you know what God does with someone like Jacob and with someone like all of us? We know that possibly the the, the pre-incarnate Christ, or at least an, an angel of the Lord, or some kind of, of manifestation of the presence of God wrestles with Jacob because Jacob wants things his own way. He wrestles with them and then he blesses him and he changes his name. He says, you will not be the one now that circumvents my grace. You will be one that receives my grace. He changes his name. He changes us. He washes us through his grace. He takes a heart that is, that is prone to just to be autonomous, to to want our own way and to circumvent God's grace and say, no, I can do this my way and to resist God's grace. He takes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. He softens us to receive his love. He shows us Jesus. He convicts us of our sin. He leads us into repentance. He reminds us of his steadfast love. The presence of Judas in this passage should be like a warning to us to examine the ways that we too might be prone to circumvent the grace of God in order to seek control over our lives. To say, okay, the grace of God is beautiful and wonderful, but it's for other people. It's for real sad cases. It's for, real, it's for people who can't do it on their own. But for me, I am dignified enough. Don't take this dignity from me. I'm going to be okay. That's what Peter is doing you're not going to wash me. And Jesus says, then you will have no part in me. See, this grace, it comes from the outside. It's nothing we muster up in ourselves. We do not earn our way to heaven. We do not make our way to heaven through our character or record. And Jesus makes this abundantly clear. Where do you think that you are too righteous in your life to not need Christ? Where do you think you're too safe Where do you feel that you are too capable in your own natural abilities that you fail to live a life of continual, humble dependency on God? There is not a moment in your life where you do not need the complete grace of God. Our lives from start to finish are for the grace of God. I think that when Jesus says that we that a servant is not above his master and that we should follow in his example. There's a, natural, there's a natural application of this, that as he loves and serves us, we ought to love and serve others. But there's something, I think, actually quite deeper in, than that. He's not merely talking about the humble act of serving. So he's not saying, you really need to serve people. Look at all the good that I did for you. Now you go do all this good for others. I think he's talking about the way that we must daily live is the way that he lived when he was with us. That we ought to defeat that sense of entitlement in us. 
that we need to defeat that sense of selfishness that makes us prone to guide our own lives and our own attitudes by what we have to bring rather than depending on him. If there's one person who truly deserved to have their feet washed, it was Jesus. He's the only person who got up from the table. And he is saying, so if I'm your master and you could agree that I'm your master and you're the ones that should be doing this to me, but I'm doing it to you, then no one who follows Jesus ever has an ounce of, of, of permission to, be, to feel superior to anyone else. We need him constantly. And he does this so that we would replace this sense of entitlement and sense of selfishness with a sense of dependency on his grace. That we would replace it with gratitude in his sacrifice and joy in our obedience to him. This is the life that he lived. This is the example that he set. Dependency on his father. Gratitude in all of God's provision and joy in the obedience even to the point of death. Let's follow him. Let's trust in him and let's rest in his grace. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.